0: Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, this is a delightful episode of Dangerous Wisdom, and I wanted to give a special introduction for a lovely dialogue with a luminous soul. In this dialogue, the artist Nika Quinn and I discuss symbolic and magical aspects of art and life. The horse serves as a focal point, but anyone interested in art, symbolism, magic, and the natural world will find a lot of nourishment here. Our dialogue touches on symbols in general and how Nika works with symbols in her art and in her life. But the horse and the symbolic and magical powers of horses have a clear presence. The symbolic and magical aspects of the horse aren't easy to summarize or explain. We will look at that more deeply. We're going to go into the wonders and mysteries of the horse in a future contemplation. For now, it seems like a nice way to honor Nika's work and our dialogue together, to preface it with a few reflections about the nature of symbols in general, and the symbolic aspect of horses in particular. Again, we want to get at things that go beyond horses, and we sometimes do that by looking at the horse as a special case. We'll move at a brisk pace here, because I don't want to overshadow our dialogue, but just want to give a sense of the richness of the ecology of mind we entered and the ecology of mind Nika works with in her life and her art. We can begin by attempting to acknowledge the special place the horse holds in the human soul, which isn't easy to do. We can look at the horse's place in the human soul in at least two ways. The first has to do with historical connections. Historically, horses have had a special place in many cultures, including most of the cultures characterized by conquest consciousness, as well as in some cultures characterized by a more liminal or indigenous consciousness. The dominant culture owes its dominance to the horse. Most everything we see in the dominant culture needed the minds and bodies of horses to make them possible overall. And so we find there a highly charged karmic relationship. Really, in any culture that had intimacy with horses, we find that highly charged relationship. It's, it's not exclusive to the dominant culture, but then you could say there's even more charge there in a certain sense because of everything that happened, that everything we used the horse to do. But we don't want to restrict the importance of the horse to any particular culture or set of cultures, because we can recognize the interwovenness of all souls. And so someone like Carl Jung would tell us that the horse has an archetypal presence in the collective unconscious. That means even if our family lineage seems to have no connection to horses, the horse still roams the landscapes of our soul. But to relate to the horse symbolically in a skillful way, or to relate to any other symbol in a skillful way, we need to consider two things. First, at least some basic level meaning of a symbol, and then an advanced way of working with a symbol. So how do we define a basic level meaning of a symbol? We can think of it in one sense as something the psyche or the soul produces as a way to orient and aid our spiritual development. In metaphorical terms, we can think of a symbol as standing on two legs. One leg has its footing in the relative reality we're used to. And the other leg has its footing in the mystery itself. That means we do not see where that other leg touches down. Now this relates to the horse's capacity as a liminal being, as a medial being, as a threshold being, a shamanic being. The horse as a symbolic and sacred being, moves across the threshold between the known and the unknown. And they can carry us across that threshold. So the horse itself represents all symbolic function, because all symbolic function has to do with carrying us into the mystery. We can see the horse as containing the magic of all other symbols, and we can see all other symbols as manifestations of the magic the horse represents. That makes the horse a special kind of keystone species in the soul, perhaps resting at the apex of a trophic cascade of sacredness, awareness, and insight. As we liberate the magic the horse represents, the entire ecology of the soul can become liberated, awakened, and vitalized. In slightly different terms, we can think of a symbol as representing an unthought known. It's a kind of a tricky term, and we're going to mean something just a little different than we might find in psychoanalysis. When we talk about our experience, when we talk about consciousness, we're talking about an ego, an I, and that I does not know the thing we need to know in order to be free. Otherwise, we'd already be fully liberated and we'd never have any neuroticism or encumbered experiences. And so, from the standpoint of that constrained ego, we don't know. Now, we could say that our soul, in its fullness, does know, but we are not able to think the thought of that knowing. So our true nature knows and never leaves its sacred knowing, but right now that is unthinkable to us. We can't think the thoughts we need to think, and we could refer to that as an unthought known. Kierkegaard, the famous philosopher, emphasized the importance of this weird and frightening territory. He said our salvation depends on thinking a thought we currently cannot think. The wiser version of us can think something we cannot currently think. If we could think it right now, we'd already be that wiser, more loving, more graceful version of ourselves. But right now... We just can't think those wiser thoughts. And to make things worse, our ego takes offense at these thoughts when we encounter them. For instance, we might listen to the teachings of a philosopher or read the teachings of a philosopher and find ourselves reacting against them. And we never say, well, this philosopher is saying things that come from the thinking I cannot think and that scares me. We never say that. Instead, we use reason and argument to dismiss the philosopher. We have the conscious experience of hearing something incorrect or even foolish. But in fact, we have simply encountered something foreign and threatening to our ego. Even though our true nature never leaves knowing it has become encumbered. And we cannot just wish that away. And so we suffer because that ignorance is active. It's not a passive thing. And as we suffer, the soul longs for us to think the thoughts we cannot think. The soul longs for us to awaken to reality. And so... The soul produces symbols or draws us toward them, symbols that can begin to somehow guide us. Sometimes we encounter those symbols in our dreams. Sometimes we encounter them in our own creative work or the creative work of an artist like Nika. And Nika's work arises in the midst of all these spiritual and philosophical mysteries that we're touching on. And that's one of the most interesting aspects of our dialogue, that it touches such deep philosophical currents. The wisdom traditions work with symbols as part of helping us heal. Wisdom traditions around the world have developed sophisticated, symbolic magic and medicine that can act as a catalyst for healing and insight. Approached in a holistic manner, the right kind of symbol embodies, contains, or opens us up to a fuller truth, maybe even the fullest truth. In this sense, the symbol carries magic and medicine, and this makes Nika's work potentially magical and healing to some degree. Her work includes many symbols, not just the horse, but many other symbols and symbolic beings, such as butterflies, wolves, feathers, trees. As far as the symbolic magic and medicine of the horse in particular, we could see the horse as an expression of our total primordial goodness, our primordial awareness and liberation, our real nature. Symbolically, the horse just is that in its fullness. All symbols have the capacity to draw us toward insight, if they're genuine symbols. They can draw us toward a knowing that we might talk about intellectually, but which we haven't realized in ourselves. A powerful symbol contains or evokes or presences a kind of gateway to the knowledge we don't have yet, but which we need in order to heal and evolve. And this is all part of the magic of the symbol. We considered this in our series on magic. And we can learn so much in contemplating magic seriously, soberly. If you listen to that series, be sure to start with the beginning, the first episode. It has seven episodes overall. And as you're scrolling down, you're, of course, going to see the most recent episodes first. So keep going until you get to part one. But in that series, we talked about the three principles of magic William Butler Yeats outlined, the great poet. Yeats points out that the nature of mind is ecological. It's interwoven. That's the first principle. The second principle is that the nature of memory is interwoven and ecological. And in that series, we look at those two principles, all three principles, And we contemplate the scientific evidence supporting the vision of magic Yeats gives us. On the basis of science and philosophy, we might start to realize that, wait a second, maybe Yeats is just telling us the truth about how the world is. It's not some pronouncement or some intellectual entertainment. But he's saying there's real magic in our world. We're part of it. And if we begin to understand the nature of mind and the nature of memory and the nature of ecology, we'll begin to touch that magic. Now, while the first two principles of magic have to do with the nature of mind and memory, the third has to do with symbols. Once we become properly trained and properly sensitized, ethically, attentionally, metaphysically, and so on. Once we get holistic philosophical training, then we can use symbols to activate that interwoven mind, memory, and landscape. And that's part of what magic does. Magic makes skillful, ethical use of the symbolic to help cultivate the whole of life onward. That's its potential. That's what real magic could do. Real magic is about furthering the conditions of life by means of symbol and by other means. Because the conscious ego, the conscious mind cannot manipulate and control the world, but through the activity of symbol, through the general activity of magic and spiritual practice, we can transcend the ordinary dualities and contradictions of the mind. A powerful symbol can transcend the opposites we usually get caught up in, carrying us to the paradoxical place between doing something and doing nothing, the paradoxical space between self and world. We usually hold those in opposition, self and world, doing something, doing nothing, as a part of. We can't control the whole. But through the symbol, through symbolic means and symbolic magic, we can become the whole in its self healing. Become the whole carrying itself forward, creating. Magic doesn't mean forcing something on the world, it has to do with tapping into the interwovenness of all things and working in service of wholeness and sacredness. The symbol also becomes synchronistic. Nika and I talk about synchronicity in our dialogue, and as a general rule, I find from listeners that as people listen to the Dangerous Wisdom Contemplations, the podcast, many synchronicities may emerge in your life. And that's got nothing to do with me personally, but it has to do with the magic of love wisdom, that we are entering that same space in these contemplations where synchronicity and magic and symbol, where these things begin to support our lives and nourish our journey and empower us to help the world. Now you can connect some of what comes up in this dialogue with Nika Quinn with that material on magic, And all of it together may deepen your relationship with your own symbols. And that's part of what's important here. If we listen with a lot of care and reverence to how somebody else tries to work skillfully, sincerely, humbly, and creatively with the symbolic, then we may thereby empower ourselves to work more skillfully and so on with whatever symbols appear in our life in our own personal lives, so to speak, and in our life together. While horse may serve as a keystone species for many humans, maybe even most or all humans, that doesn't mean that each of us doesn't also have our own very special spirit beings. Maybe for you it's butterfly or hummingbird or honeybee or owl or wolf. But listening to how one person has worked with their symbols and with symbols in general, can empower us. And that's another aspect. It's wonderful to hear Nika talk about how other symbols come through her, that she's able to invite the magic of symbols by opening up to the mystery. The wisdom traditions teach us all to do that, to live in the space artists can visit in a moment of inspiration. And I can sense that Nika tries to practice in such a way as to live there too. And what Nika talks about, for instance, is how she works with these symbols in such a way that she's able to make, let's say, a portrait of someone which integrates symbols that are ready to work magic in that person's life. So it's a very intimate and personal kind of magic. And we have a special treat in this episode because Nika shared a few images with me that I will put in a YouTube release of this episode. Now, I'll also mix in some symbolic portraits of horses done by means of photography, which can be a little tricky. But we'll have those mixed in and maybe some stock imagery as well, just to make it a slightly richer viewing experience. Sometimes when, when I release these episodes, they've been primarily audiograms, and I've been wanting to do something a little bit more, so we'll, we'll try that here. It'll be just an initial experiment. You can let me know what you think, and it, it may not be uh, fully rich the whole way through. We'll see how much I can get into, uh, into the uh, video. But in any case, at least, say, at the first half an hour or so, of the episode if you want a fuller audio visual experience, check out the Dangerous Wisdom YouTube channel and we'll start the images of Nika's work about the time that our interview begins. So you can so I'll put some a kind of filler material in before that and then we'll get into the images that she's done as well as some other photographic portraits in the uh, first half an hour of the real dialogue itself. Now I encourage you to consider supporting Nika's work. I mean, you might really enjoy one of her symbolically rich portraits of you or a friend, or uh, maybe it's a four-legged friend, or maybe it's another human being. But do keep in mind the spiritual materialism of symbols. We always have to watch out for spiritual materialism. Nothing escapes that, certainly not art. When we engage with symbols, and if we want to empower ourselves and liberate their magic for the benefit of all beings, we have to do the work. Now, otherwise, we unconsciously, unconsciously try to satisfy the hunger of the soul by means of purchase and possession. Now, we all know that we can't buy the power of a symbol, and yet the dominant culture drives us to try and do just that and to fool ourselves by rationalizing it in some way that we don't see. But if we can resist that conditioning, and if we can draw from the wisdom traditions to work with the potentials that an artist like Nika can help put us in touch with, then we can begin to receive the kind of nourishment the soul urges us to seek. Now that we have all that wonderful context, let's introduce our guest. Nika Quinn is a visionary artist, perpetually inspired by nature and horses and the roles they play in deepening our understanding about ourselves. Her mission is to bridge the gap of the spiritual, ethereal realms with the physical, to inspire others to tap into the magic that lies beyond the tangible. Horses have been her gateways, her guides, and her muses throughout her life and artistic journey, and they continue to lead her down this path today. She began sharing images on social media with what was going on in her internal world with horses, and she found that there were a lot of people resonating with what she depicted. And her work has now evolved into horses at the forefront, but really the interconnection of everything. She's been a digital freelance artist since 2020, offering custom pet portraits, intuitive personal portraits. And this work has led her to other amazing collaborations with horsewomen around the world. She's also hosted online creative workshops and co-hosted retreats Weaving Together Creativity and Horse Wisdom. She has a lot going on. So I encourage you to visit her website and her Instagram. You can find the majority of her work on Instagram at Nika Draws Nature. It's N I C A. And her website, NikaDrawsNature.com. You'll find links to Nika's website and Etsy store in the show notes. Nika Quinn, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Where are you uh, speaking to us from?
1: I am currently in Wisconsin. This is where I grew up. Um, however, I will be making a more or less permanent move to Scotland in the very near future.
0: Wow. A permanent move to Scotland. And where in Scotland will you be going?
1: Um, we are currently outside of Glasgow on the West Coast.
0: Okay. Yeah, there's a there's a kind of strong rewilding campaign that's going on there now because uh, for those who don't know, the, the Romans once made much of the Caledonian forest, what they called the wild Caledonian forest, and it's hard to tell how much of that is wanting to sound like we were big tough guys that we uh, you know we went up there and this impossible terrain we kicked butt, but certainly it was probably a lot wilder than what we see now. Even though we think of it as wild now, don't we?
1: Yes. There's yeah. definitely a lot of, I've, I've noticed like the land there is just so deep and there's so much history entangled with it, but you can tell that there's something missing still, like in its, at its core, like a, a longing for the humans to do the rewilding as well.
0: Hmm. Well, there you go, right? There's a, it's a participatory uh, process there, right? We have to do our work. We can't just sit around and wait for nature to fix all our messes. I mean, she's been absorbing our ignorance for a long time now. It seems like she's kind of said, I've I've eaten enough human ignorance. It <laughs> said, I'm going on a diet.
1: <laughs> now you guys have to do some work too, thanks. Uh, right, <laughs> yes,
0: yes, I've been doing this all. So now, now one of the things, of course, that's interesting about your work is this presence of horse. And it's a, a kind of Interesting thing to, uh, in our culture, I don't know how much connection we have to this. Um, you know, there's, I often talk about Claude levi strauss his book Totemism, there he says that animals are not totems because they're good to eat, which was actually a thought for a while in, in the dominant culture anthropology. He said, no, they're totems because they are good to think. And so, it, this is a, a, a something we're not used to, and it would be part of rewilding. There's a, a, a long history of that. But what does it mean to think horse? And it appears that that horse began to to enter your thinking. If we could, if we construe thinking broadly and think of artistic activity as a, a function of, of healthy thinking, not habitual thinking, in its best case. So, how did that begin to happen for you? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well. Since I was very young, and my mom also loved horses, but I was just infatuated by them and I did not have them in my life. So besides watching, you know, TV shows or movies about horses, I also drew them and played with my imaginary horses and had all the horse dolls and everything. And they were just so a part of my, my inner world I felt like I grew up with horses, even though I didn't. And it's funny to think back on that. If, I mean, the amount of posters I had in my room of horses, the uh, the amount of drawings of just horses, unicorns, Pegasus, like all of it. Like they're just, I have sketchbooks and sketchbooks of my younger self, just being so drawn to horses. And it, I, I did, have horses in my life in some capacity. Um, Every year I went on a vacation with my family and we went to a a ranch and we got to ride all week. And that was like my introduction. Um, So I never took formal lessons. I never, which at the time I was not resentful, but I, I definitely longed for that. I wanted them consistently in my life. However, that was not my reality. So I made it happen for myself after high school. I went and worked at the ranch that (laughs) I grew up going to. And then from there, horses have been been in my life since. So I don't know, probably about 13 years now. And they've just never separated from my art. It's just like, it has always been a theme throughout my life. And I even found, um, I've written in journals since I was young as well. And I found a journal entry when I was like eight years old, maybe. And it said, when I grew up, I want to be a horseback rider and an artist. And I mean, <laughs> I think I'm doing my eight-year-old self proud at the moment. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. That's fascinating. Yeah. And it's interesting how th- there was this work with the horse as symbol first. I mean, there's a way in which the relationship is so profound that it it already transcends these kind of apparent physical manifestations, and we don't maybe uh, fully appreciate that that there's a, a spiritual reality that goes together with that. Almost maybe that the soul needed time to process it. You know, James Hill. I, th- I think yes, it's James Hillman who was talking about there was this man, a uh, Spanish man, who would end up becoming. Uh, one of the greatest bullfighters in the history of the sport. And I know some people have strong opinions about that sport, but, you know, it it is what it is. But when he was a child, he was well known for being really shy and he would hide behind his mother's skirt. You know, when people would come, he he was holding up the skirt. Now, So, in other words, he's he's already almost being that bullfighter, but in the sense that he was not ready for it, and so... Hillman's view, and and so he also says this uh, about Churchill, that Churchill, when he was young, stuttered and had a problem with stuttering. And his view is, well, the soul knew how much was going to depend on that voice. And the soul knew, in the case of the bullfighter, what that b- boy was going to have to do one day. And it kind of trembled. The, the part of us that is the ego was like, oh, oh, I don't know. what." The soul knows what's coming, and the rest of us is going, I don't know if I can do this. And so then there's a work that has to be done to get us ready for it. And maybe that was a gift, in, in a sense, from your parents, is that you it was important to work on that symbolic level so that the soul could be ready to be... You know, otherwise you could have made a lot of mistakes with horses, right? The way little girls are trained to
1: to treat I, them. I think that's so insightful. I I really have never thought about it like that before. I've thought it in a more practical, like a logical way, like you just said, where I was conditioned to a point, um, but I wasn't, nothing was so crazy ingrained that I couldn't change it. And I didn't have the quote unquote formal traditional background as most people did. And I now view that as a gift because like, you're right. Like I really spent a lot of time in my mind. I mean, I wrote, I wrote stories about horses. I drew about them. I daydreamed about them. I thought about them all the time. Like it was almost, you're right. More of that symbolic bond that I was able to create and connect with um, the horse archetype in a way like as a child, and I've actually, I've just never thought about it like that, and I think that's a really, really interesting component to why I'm continuously (laughs) working with horses still. They've just, they've always been there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we can underestimate that archetypal dimension, that there's something so mysterious about it, and uh, I'll be coming out soon with uh, an episode on the horse and the human soul and one of the things that we'll explore is how uh deeply entrenched in the unconscious the horse really is because there's this really old relationship that we have and um it, not all of it's been good i i saw in one of the images that you made you have this uh wonderful image of woman and horse and it says that the the next revolution will not be <laughs> on horseback it will not happen on horseback but with us walking next to them that's a powerful mm-hmm. thing because we have that's what we've done we've gone to war with them traditionally and people forget that now for you and uh, it, the walking next to them has that started to supersede riding
1: <laughs> what's funny is i knew that right before you said which image I knew that was the image you were going to pick out. <laughs> ah,
0: good, good, good. Um,
1: and yes, I think that, so for me, riding was the ultimate symbol of freedom. And that's the, that is what ran through my dreams as a kid. It was like that feeling of just pure freedom, just going as, Fast as we want and as free as we can be. And for me, that, um, that continued to live on as I worked with horses. I was a trail guide for many years and I realized when I met a certain horse who changed things for me, um, everything started shifting after that. And it was when I stopped riding. And actually when I really stopped quote unquote working with them is when all of this other information was allowed to come through for me and not riding and observing them from a distance and not having them consistently in my life. So I have to be like that little kid again, where I am waiting for the opportunity to just see one and connecting with them in the the more ethereal realms. Like, That has been just such a change in consciousness for me. And I think in letting go of the the notion of riding, I have learned so much more about horse thought possible. And so I'm not against riding horses by any means. I love it still. But I think that there's so much knowledge and wisdom that they can give to us when we're not on their backs as well.
0: Hmm. And I, I, I want to mention that what we will do with this uh, particular dialogue is I, I'm going to release, I don't release all of these on YouTube, but I, I'm going to try to be better about doing that because I know they're easier to find there. But Nika has agreed to allow me to put some of her images, so maybe we'll include that image. And if you if you want, you can shift over to YouTube at any time. Uh, you can give this a second listen even, and you'll be able to see some of her images. Maybe I'll mix in a few of my own um, and then we'll have a nice little dialogue that way too—an an imagistic dialogue. Did this uh, horse that you're talking about have a name? Do you, or is is that okay to say? Or you don't you want to?
1: Yes, I am sure he wants to be heard right now. Um, his his our story together is very interesting, and it is con- still unfolding, which is very cool. So, I met Mo back in 2017. And to paint the picture, he is a saddlebred Frisian cross, b- black and white paint. He's gorgeous. Um, but he actually scared a lot of people with his intensity. <laughs> um, he's, he's just unlike any horse I've ever met. He's very, very deep on a level that, anybody that saw him whether they were horse people or not were captivated by him immediately and when I first started working with him I I didn't realize how much he would teach me but it happened pretty quickly um I had to treat him so different than I'd ever worked with any horse before I mean his sensitivity level was outrageous (laughs) um I mean, he was a, he's a reason I know what, I mean, he showed me what, how to embody emotions, how to be congruent or even what that meant. I didn't, I didn't have any idea of even what that could possibly mean, but I would notice when I would go out into the field to be with him and I would have anxiety or all these troubling thoughts in my head or whatever it was he would straight up run away from me, like across the field, like just not let me get near him. And some days I would give up and get upset because I felt, you know, that was a rejection or whatever it was that I was projecting onto him. But I started realizing how much I could, if I could control myself in a positive way, he would then be so responsive and i still didn't have the words to this i had no idea what any of this meant but i knew that it was working and i just started listening to him a little bit more and more every time and i had never felt that level of a connection before because i've never one had my own horse um, to have that kind of deep relationship with i've always worked for other people expectations on me or the horses. There's always a job to do, not enough time. So to take this time with this horse was just incredible. And I mean, I had to be so aware of everything that was going on in his body and his mind. And I had to respond in that moment, like to the horse he was in that moment, because it could shift at any point. And I, again, hadn't worked with horses in Quite like that yet. So there, like, I remember the day specifically that we finally cantered around the arena for the first time, and it had been almost two years of us working together. And I just broke down crying afterwards because I was like, I have never felt that level of connection. Like, I heard him offer it to me, like, we can do this. And I had to trust that. It was going to be okay. And it was just so profound because I feel like I hadn't heard horses in that way yet either. Or at least accepted that I'd heard them. (laughs) And so we've got a very long history of just this constant dialogue that he shared with me. And then I'll keep a long story short, but he essentially the person I was working for um, brought him to a different trainer without really telling me that that was happening. And then I quit that job right afterwards. So Mo allowed me to quit a job that I needed to leave, actually, because he gave me the courage to say all of the things I was thinking, (laughs) Um, because I felt like I was more standing up for him at the moment. And then it turned into standing up for myself. So he gave me that, that courage. And I truly thought that was the last time I'd ever see him. And that was three and a half years ago. And (laughs) last year I had the person, the person who bought him eventually reached out to me. And then we had a little conversation. And then in February, Mo was then transferred to somebody else, and she reached out to me. And I told her that if there was any time she ever needed to rehome him, like, let me know first. And in August, she reached out to me, and I got him on a trailer and got him back to Wisconsin. And I just saw him last week for the first time in three and a half years. Wow. Yeah, and it was... I mean, I don't feel like I had any part in this. I feel like he has more to say to the world and that I'm more his uh <laughs> channel, <laughs> his voice for yes. the world. I I truly believe that he made that happen. That I I I don't know, it just it was the synchronicity, the timing was just unreal. I got back from Scotland August 10th and then he was at my friend's farm in the start of September. But I was only able to get out there last week. So it was wow. quite the reunion.
0: That sounds marvelous. Yeah. How did it feel seeing Mo again?
1: I had a lot of buildup and a lot of nerves of that piece of rejection. Like, did I make up this whole scenario where we're this connected, these connected souls and we have so much purpose together and all this stuff. And I just had this fear that he would just yeah ignore me or not have the same reaction and oh it was so special it was very very special moment um and he gave me some very good insight in just a couple days of the things that we still have to do together and all the things places we have to go and the people we have to talk to Mm -hmm. so i'm very excited to see where this all unfolds
0: yeah and there are a and, lot of, oh, please finish, yeah.
1: Oh, sorry. I wanted to finish saying that we both had to let go of a chapter of where we were and who we were. And so I, he helped rename himself Merlin. So that is, he is now ah, Merlin. Ah,
0: wonderful. <laughs> oh, this is very, very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I was j- just going to say that there are a lot of archetypal elements in the story that um, are significant. You know, w- one of the things I, I, a touchstone for me uh, has always been. You know, we we philosophers we kind of have like a little medicine bag, and there are a few things stones in there and other things that we take out regularly as the main uh, power objects but uh, this one's always surprised me because it's W H Auden who I, he's not a mystic he's a kind of plain poet in a lot of ways he's fun to read but uh, you, you know I don't think he's the most profound poet but yet he's written some really nice things and he wrote uh, a, a wonderful line we are lived by powers we pretend to understand and uh, a Jungian might say, well, those are the archetypes, you know, so horse is living us. We have a choice, you know, so we can, we're lived by powers, we pretend to understand what is the power that lives Elon Musk? Well, it's capitalism. He, th- he may think that he's a person making decisions, but one of the things that Marx shows us is that, you no, know, uh, capitalism is, is driving you. You're just an agent of it, and its incoherences then become yours. That's also probably why he's a little bit goofy and does weird, you know, says weird things all the time. And so we can decide then. We can say, well, I will be lived by capitalism or I'll be lived by whatever variety of ignorance. Or I could try to be lived by one of these more sacred powers. And then come all the dangers, not least of which are ego. Because like, say, in the case of Elon Musk, I did it. I have I this, I this, my agenda. Whereas, no, it's not yours. And if you would be honest about that, then you might even think differently but even when we are lived by the good powers our ego can step in and become inflated you know like i am the special whatever and your story is so beautiful because you're, you there's no sense of that uh, and it's uh, wonderful to have the the sense that okay horse is living through and archetypally horse is also living through merlin even and there does seem to be even a range because of the human insanity that um, sometimes we we our ego does that too it projects too much onto a horse like as if horses could never be traumatized or have problems yes. whereas right right you know like not every horse is a buddha you know and some of them are are just sentient beings like us and maybe even in worse shape if we were to be able to be in their mind we would say wow this is a hell realm and the only admiration i have for you is that you're able to get by you know as opposed to some horses might really be a little bit more something magical is really coming through a little more effectively and so he has, maybe he does have a lot that he wants to, you are the agent in of, of this of this power. And then it can be very humbling. Then we can feel like, well, you know, I'm just a servant, a caretaker of something. But that's a really marvelous story. And I'm so happy for you that you're a friend. And what a great name. I mean, I just, I really like that. Yeah. Merlin.
1: Well, it's interesting, too, because he, when when I found out that he was, I was going to meet him again. Um, I got the overwhelming feeling that I just needed to rename him. And I hadn't even seen him yet. And I sat with it and Merlin just popped up right away. And I was like, was that just because it's an M? Maybe. But I was like, I don't know. I'll sit with it. And uh, I think it was a couple days later, but I was pulling a card from the Way of the Horse deck by Linda Koonoff. And I was talking to Mo and Merlin spirit was the card that came up. So I was like, okay. (laughs) And, and that card is about divine masculine energy. And that is a very big part of what I believe Merlin brings is this divine masculine, but wanting to empower the divine feminine in the world. So, and I think that's, Okay. So I'll continue with the name. Um, and then recently when I did see him, I again pulled the Merlin spirit card. And then the next day I looked randomly at this crystal book that was sitting on a table and I pulled it open to a page and it was Merlinite. And I'd never heard of that before. And wouldn't you know that this is a stone that is black and white and it is about connecting to the mystic realms. It's about, it's a shaman stone is what it was called. And it was all about accessing the mystic. And I just couldn't, I was like, well, I guess I know my answer. (laughs) So I do believe that that his coloring itself too. That black and white is those balancing energies. Like, I just, I feel like he is a symbol in, himself
0: <laughs> mm, that's so wonderful and it's interesting you say that because i so i often meet horses who i think have the wrong name and it seems to me when i reflect on what name they might have like if i were you know uh, giving them a spiritual name and say okay now let's be in a, a, a sangha together i often find that it's like a person got close like oh you got the first sound <laughs> that's right if there is a there is a. P- 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 Something there, but it 's Prajna. Why did you call this horse whatever Penelope or something even though well, penelope's a nice name, but um and so of course some horses are they have names that are kind of silly, like you think why why did you call your horse like Newman Newman from Seinfeld? Is that what you really call this horse but there's a wonderful synchronicity to our our, our uh, line of thought here too, because uh, young people thought of. Like the locals thought he was like a magician, you know, he was, he's the magician, the old magician. And I don't know if it's true, but a Jungian was telling me that she heard when he made his, his little tower, his castle, miniature house, uh, miniature castle house on the shore of the lake, and he made it all by hand, you know, and, he would go there by himself. And the story is that he had like a magician's robes that he would put on like as if he were Merlin when he was there by himself. And he would be, be, and I think, and of course he was very interested in the divine feminine having its place here as well and taking care of the earth. It's quite marvelous. And further synchronistic, or at least resonance, is that my best friend is a black and white horse. I'm sure they don't look the same. But he has this beautiful, especially on his hindquarters, this beautiful arc of white in the black that I always think of as the arc of the soul. I sometimes think, it's not a very flowing name, though, to call him Arco de Alma. Even (laughs) Something about it I like, but that's a very complicated (laughs) name, Arco de Alma. So, uh, yeah, I just call him Nashville because his. they called him Nash. And I think Nash is not, that's not your name. But how about Nashville? That sounds good. <laughs> good old <nice>. country boy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's beautiful.
0: Yes. So we have these black and white magical horses in our lives. I'm really... Mm. Delighted to hear that, so now you wanted to say something though about the you, about the, the archetypal feminine, which is re- very relevant here because of the resonance of course between the horse and the burdens that horse has carried, the fact that it was mares who would first w- would have been the first ones enslaved by human beings because the stallions would have been too difficult to deal with and that association in the horse world so many women in the horse world and this the burden that we've put on the earth i mean the whole there's a whole complex we would say jung would say psychological as if i'm that much of a jungian no i like him but i just he's very relevant right now so we have this complex around the <laughs> feminine and uh, what, what 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 would you like to say about that
1: i'm learning that this is a very large part of my work is the reconnection to the feminine um horses also allowed me to do that for myself um as well as a lot of other factors but that was this this artistic journey I'm on is all the things that I'm learning and collecting and integrating in my own life is what I'm then putting into art and sharing with others and the the work I've been doing around accessing and embodying my own femininity and what that means, I am then able to inspire and share that with other women. And especially like you said, in the horse world, we are still far away from completely obliterating the domination (laughs) of horses. And I think that there's been a long time where women or just, just people in general. I mean, we have been taught that we have to dominate horses. That And maybe you don't have to say it like that, but you have to be in charge. You have to be the boss. You have to not let them get away with anything. You have to basically make them do as you say. And I think there's so many correlations with that with women throughout history that they become subservient and submissive to the, whether it's just the patriarchy or male figures in general, but I think it really reflects a lot in the horse world of having quote unquote like male gurus as our um <laughs> horsemen that we learn from throughout the years. Like there it's just it's interesting that there's always this male figure and tons of women that are following what he's saying. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that we can't have that. I'm It's just part of the story. And I just think that when we embody what makes women so special of that deep empathy and, you know, connecting with our own emotions, which men are doing now too, which is great. Um, But when we translate that into the horsemanship, horsemanship, (laughs) horsewomanship, we connect with horses on such a different level and you realize how you do not need to have this tight grip control over them when you can tune into some other frequency. And I think that just, it says a lot about what we suppress in the world as well is that we don't like to look at those emotional qualities that we can bring to daily life. And we'd much rather push them down and get on with it and have an agenda and get to the plan instead of letting it all happen and unfold as it needs to. (laughs) Time is irrelevant in the horse world, or it should be.
0: Yeah, that's, well, that's very, there's a lot that is going on there. And even referencing back to to what you were saying before, too. I mean, the time element, I I just want to speak up for Socrates here again, who really asked us, we're we're talking 2,500 years ago, and, and this was the escape route that people often took when Socrates got them to the place of not knowing how to respond. In other words, finally confronting their actual ignorance. Because he went to people, as I often say, always, I'm sure everyone listening, you've heard a million times, but he would go to the, you know, whoever was the the skillful person, not just like any boneheads. Of course, he talked to people who were kind of bonehead people. That He just talked to them because, you know, that's who was there. But sometimes he was going to someone who was supposedly an expert, and he really liked to find that expert because he thought, well, then you must know something, right? And in every case, the person is brought to this place of having to face their own ignorance, but it's terrifying. And so they would say, I don't have time for this. And he was like ridiculously willing to, to make time even when you know he has to be in court and he's standing outside the courthouse having this big, big discussion with somebody and he's saying what you know what i know we have to go to court but whatever you know this is wisdom this is life and death who cares what happens in the courthouse so it's beautiful because the horse is really often asked that of us and this is so such a structure right now that we people don't Understand we're being lived by not having enough time. That's an element of the capitalist framework because if we're kept busy, we do not have time to get in touch with wisdom and say no to what's happening. We're just too overburdened and we don't have the time. But there's also this, I love this, people might not know this, non-horse people who are listening who should be listening because this is just interesting stuff. And any time I talk about horses, I think it's, it's every bit as applicable to people who might not think of themselves as horse people. But for those who don't know, there is this weird phenomenon where I don't know what the exact percentages are. But if you go to a barn or you go to a horse clinic or workshop or some horse event, you'll see huge numbers of women. But it turns out that most of the people who are the stars have all the teaching to do, they often are men. And there is this weird disconnect. And it would be very different. You're right. See, our our friend Jordan Peterson likes to say, well, there are hierarchies of competence. Okay, but that's not inherent. I I actually disagree. Is that really true that all the hierarchies that we see, because we need hierarchies, there should be someone, if someone knows more than I do, I want them to teach me. And there's no problem with that. But if there is a hierarchy, but it's not strictly on the basis of competence, that happens. That's how you elect a, a president who went bankrupt running a casino. I mean, that's that's pretty high level of incompetence. But still, you can be president even as that incumbent. Or you ask the question: competent at what? And for Socrates, that was the part of the big, you know, question: well, Are you competent at what? Competent at what the culture thinks you should be doing? And you can do that well, or are you competent at what would really connect with the horse? So, uh, one of the earliest, uh, as far as we know, the earliest collection of women's literature. There are two places women are are there. So, the earliest women's literature that we have, you know, by a woman, or you could say so that like the earliest literature we have, like the earliest book by an author that we can identify is a woman's book. And that's uh, and a, and a, a Hedwana, who was the priestess of Inanna. So she was a really fascinating figure, a priestess and a poet and a really cool lady. Um, and then the earliest collection of women's literature is women who studied with Buddha. And here's how you can tell what, what kind of teacher he was and why it was okay for him to be at the hierarchy, at the top of the hierarchy is they wrote again and again at how he had liberated them from their life of misery, including their husband that they couldn't stand, right who was in charge of them, and so often you see the three crooked things you know the crooked pestle that I have to use to in the mortar uh, uh my crooked mother in law who's bent over a stupid and my crooked husband, you know, and there she, she's she's <laughs> thrilled to be free from all of this patriarchy, but uh all those things are are still alive today because the problem too, what you were getting at, I think, in part when we ask, well, are we liberating the horses? If women are being taught, even in the most subtle and we could say civilized ways to oppress the, oppress the horse, to continue the oppression, then they are just being indoctrinated into the very thing that they thought they wanted to be against. Like if Hillary Clinton had been president, really? Is it that, I mean, sure, Trump was crazy, but it's not like I was like, oh my God, please let Hillary, it'll be the greatest thing to have a woman president. No, not if not if she's just replicating the structures of power and i think we can start to see that in the horse world where women are things that kind of look like okay that's like a little bit like assault or you know like i i mean i hate to say it but sometimes you see things that are just a little bit rapey looking when, when people are doing it in the horse world and you think what in the world how is that a thing you know even some you know venerable names who i won't mention because i don't want to You know, foul them. But okay, so there's some some general philosophical reflections. I will
1: touch on that last part you said, um, because consent is a very large discussion that's happening now in the horse world about does the horse consent to what I'm asking it to do? And that's a very nuanced conversation as well. So it's not a black and white thing. It's not that j- they just say yes or no, and then that's the conversation over forever. There's a lot of gray area within that. However, if you want to just take a direct sample of an example of human life, that if you, if somebody were to pressure a woman and say, like, you know, this is what I want, like, do it now. And then they say no, and you just, make it happen well we would say that that is not okay that that is rape or that is whatever but in the horse world that is training yeah and it's very when you start looking at it through a lens of is the horse simply submit submitting and giving up losing their soul to this or if they're engaging and is this a partnership and they're excited to do this, like that's a totally different energy. Like you can do all the same things with a horse at all, but there's like similar training methods that can be used in one way or the other, depending on what kind of energy and intention you also have going into it because obviously they read all of that.
0: <laughs> yeah. It is so tricky because we don't know to what degree, um, because they, uh, are very good at hiding their pain and we can't always read them or we read them incorrectly. And the way I sometimes think of it is if you went into a bar and so somebody, some guy walks into a bar, he sees a woman he finds attractive and he walks up to her and he's very friendly and non-threatening. And he says, uh, you know, I would really love to sit in your lap while I drink this beer and she, and she just walks away. And so then she goes and sits at another table and he goes over and he s- comes over to that table and he says, I'd really like to sit in your lap while I drink this beer. And she's, and so, you know, now she's, she says, okay, I'm, I, I, I'm i not interested. She walks to another table, he follows her. Then she decides she's going to leave the bar, but it's now locked. So she can't get out of the bar. And then other people just start telling her, look, just let the guy sit in your lap and drink a beer. It's, it's, what's the big deal? He's just going to sit in your lap and drink a beer. <laughs> And so then she finally says, okay, I mean, it's when we put a horse in a round pen, and we just keep saying, well, you're not leaving the round pen. Um, I'm not going to hit you, <laughs> right? Um, I'm going to be really nice and keep asking, and what do you do? And is that a, I mean, you know, that that scenario is a little bit weird, right?
1: Because you touching on that in a, it's not a threat, necessarily, it's not um great harm it's just high discomfort and i think that that's a better you are right a really good metaphor for what's more acceptable in training right now is that that almost like that coercion like oh it's not that bad like just just do it you know and yeah if you look at it from the force's point of view it doesn't really sit the same sometimes yeah
0: yeah it's a it's a funny thing so in uh, in your art, I mean, we talked about one of, the, one of the images that that comes through. What are some of the other... Well, okay, so maybe this will connect or not. I mean, that's the question I want to uh, ask you is just to talk and maybe elaborate a little bit about how a horse comes through. But one of the things also I wanted to notice and, and honor is this. It's easy to say, but still important to say that a horse is a mirror for our soul and a vehicle for our soul. And we don't have to, since it's our soul, that doesn't weigh anything, and the horse can carry that very far, it turns out. Um, but in order for that to work, one of the things that your story illustrates is that we have to start knowing how to be a mirror for the horse. There has to be a mutuality, and that's that stilling of them, not controlling, as you you, you you, were trying to put it in a nuanced way, but how do we begin to let that water become still so that it is a mirror and how do we begin to understand the way to liberate what we refer to as emotions, which are usually encumbered expressions of some kind of energy? That's very often like anger, reactivity. Um, sometimes people like think, okay, well, that's just uh, um, fine to be angry. But often it's that it's an encumbered expression of something. And it's not like you're just enlightened and you're angry. I mean, so... Um, there's, there's a lot there that it sounds like you've been trying to work with, which is how do I cultivate awareness and how do I begin to understand the true nature of emotions and how they can become liberated expressions and maybe you can you can and since i'm also inviting this other question so you can go on as long of a tangent here as you want how the horse maybe teaches some of those lessons and how that feels like it comes through in the imagery that you receive because those are some of the lessons those are the the symbol for jung right is that the 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 soul can't tell the ego what the end result is because it's inconceivable doesn't make any sense but the image can express it. That's what the symbol does. It says this is where you need to head and it's an orientation and only when we get there will we say, oh, I understand the magic that this was inviting me into. Okay, so there's all that. Go. Go, Nika.
1: Okay. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm going to pick what came up right at the end there for me um, was this idea of letting go of that end result because your ego loves to have the know of what's going to happen. And working with my art over the past couple of years, I've realized something that makes me a little different that I didn't think I didn't know was not normal, I guess, (laughs) Um, is that with my art, I essentially channel it and Which is, I mean, not everyone puts it in those words, but that is often what happens with art. However, when I'm even doing work for people, like commissions or whatever it is, I allow the image to be whatever it wants to be. And so nobody knows what they're going to be getting when they, I mean, I might have a certain style that they order or whatever it is. But for the most part, I open my mind and allow whatever image to come through. And I don't question it anymore. I did at the start. And if I added like little symbols or little extra things, at first I would question it. And then after so many responses of validation of like, oh, that feather meant this to me, or this reminds me of my mother or something like that, that all these symbols kept, um, representing things for people and it was very interesting
0: can i pause you there just so, so listeners are clear you're referring i think if i if i understand you to these kind of uh spiritual portraits that you do like a soul portrait of someone can you say a little bit about that and then i yes. think that this will make even more sense i'm sure people okay. are p- piecing it together clever listeners but anyway just to give them the, the context
1: um so i did i've done different kinds of portraits so one of them is just a, a pet portrait or whatever it was whether there's was the horses or dogs whatever however with that it would still be kind of whatever needed to happen so I was never I did not like replicating something exactly I like having my own style interpretation and so sometimes especially with animals that have passed like maybe a little phrase would pop up in my head or like something a little extra that I felt like was kind of coming to me from beyond, which was very cool. And it definitely took me a while to grasp that this was even happening. And then it turned into this portrait that I call whole self portraits. And what that was, is essentially, I would ask people various questions, like it'd be like, 10 to 15 questions that are pretty in depth and very vulnerable because this is more of like kind of prompting from the depths. I didn't need to know all of this, but they did. And then we would have a Zoom conversation and I would just kind of tune in, ask questions, but more or less just like read the energy of them. And I didn't know I even had the (laughs) capability of doing such a thing. And I would then take the questions what they brought up and any other notes or feelings that i had and i essentially channel a portrait of them and what makes them them so like it is it's a very detailed piece that may include animals or different parts of nature or whatever it is but it is meant to represent them as a whole soul And maybe not who they are right now, but who they aspire to be. So that way, when they look at it, they have something to reflect back to them who they are in their soul, but maybe they haven't fully found how to express it yet. And using it almost as like an affirmation, a visual affirmation. (laughs) So yes, that is kind of how my work has evolved. And I think... It, going back to the idea of no expectations, it really allows so much openness and creativity to flow through because I have enough parameters. I know who I'm working with, who who I'm doing this for and certain things that I can visualize happening already. But for the most part, I just, I enter into what we would call the flow state and I just get lost in this world where it's almost like my mind's eye and the paper are just one and it just kind of all flows out and in between each other. And it's, it's a very fun, fun process.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, I would say it's, it's probably not really the flow state. I think the flow state's too limited. I, I think you're in a little bit more of a, the, the idea, the old idea is that uh, the artist visits the place where the mystic lives. So when I work with artists, i work i'm working with this this very thing how do we let the mystery come through and all the greats did this you know so bach used to say i don't compose this stuff god does and i just take notation uh haydn when he would uh, he was a wonderful composer haydn and a very unlikely composer because he was an orphan and um ended up having this huge impact on dominant culture music and he's a genius and when he would get stuck, he would pray the rosary. That's it. It's not like he would think about music or what. You know, just pray the rosary. It'll come. Why should I bother when God can do it? It's also interesting. I don't know if you, you said you had listened to a few episodes. When you get to the series on magic, uh, we look at Yeats's work there. And Yeats was really into magic, and his wife was an automatic writer. And so he published a book called A Vision, which was like, um, kind of selection of her writings and, and you know, the image that it, that it presented. And then back to Jung, he, you know, Jung had gone on this visionary journey into the soul, which as an artist, maybe you, have you seen the Red Book or some of the images from the Red Book? Mm-hmm. It's, it's worth looking at. And for all of you out there, Jung, what he did in order to understand the psyche was he went into it. And he encountered, that's part of how he really came to understand the archetypes, is he encountered their presences. And, uh, you know, it's when you're having a, an imaginal journey into the soul, and you meet a being, and the being tells you things that you don't know, and you don't know what they're going to say, you, you don't really think, I'm just daydreaming. You know, you think, there's, there's something going on here. And so he wrote all, this, all these soul journeys in a series called The Black Books. They're just journals, and that you can buy those now, too. But then he had this big red book he actually the name of it is Liber novus the new book but it, it was called the red book because it was this big red book that was on a beautiful book stand and if you were really in he might let you he might show it to you you know and he had done all these paintings because jung was you know he built his house he, he was he knew how to carve stone and um he did you know stone inscriptions and things and and he did these paintings and they're really lovely to look at so you can get this big uh it's a very substantial book like too, very uncomfortable to hold that it has like a it's a direct scan it's a digital scan reproduction of the red book you can also get a readers version I'm saying all this because Jung, he went off through all this journey and it was, he thought to himself, I'm never going to be able to explain this to the world because this is not scientific, quote unquote, you know, he felt that he was trying to tell the truth and that he was encountering reality. But he thought, what am I going to say? I'm sitting around having visions and all this stuff came through, you know? So he's working on something and he gets a manuscript from Richard Wilhelm who translated the Yijing and was a friend of Jung. Spent, Wilhelm spent 20 years in China and he translated this uh, obscure Taoist-Buddhist text. It's Taoist but with strong Buddhist influence. I mean, it's almost like a Buddhist text in a way. And he sends it to Jung and Jung is reading, he was painting a mandala from one of these experiences of his and he reads about a mandala in, in this book from China that he knows nothing about, never been translated. And he said, that's my mandala. And he that was the trigger point for him to say, that's it. I'm just going to start putting out this information in whatever way I can that I think people will be able to receive it. And he's still, of course, a fringe figure in a lot of ways. But the, that book was channeled, the one that triggered that whole thing. It was done by, it was an old method of like um, having a pendulum swing in the ashes, because these are, this is Chinese characters it's making, right? So it's almost like you can understand how you don't even have to be touching it if you could, if you could find a way to to create abstract patterns. And so they were using like a kind of pendulum swinging through ash, and they channeled this crazy book called The Secret of the Golden Flower. So anyways, that was, so all of this is very resonant with so many uh, traditions and, and, um, it's really wonderful to have that sense to begin to practice in a way where you're letting those sacred powers and inconceivable causes work through you. And then you see these synchronicities. You say, I don't know why there's a feather, but you, you did it. And there it is. And it's a marvelous, it must feel very rewarding.
1: Yes, it has been one of the most interesting, profound projects I've ever done. Um, and it's not over. I just needed a break because I was in a in a moment of creative drought, um, <laughs> which we can talk on a little bit, too, because that's an interesting uh, part of the creative flow. But yes, it has been truly incredible to tune in with people. I've done almost 60 of these already, and every one of them is so different, so unique. And the people that I have done this for I've actually received a lot of feedback like months afterwards from a couple like handful of people more than even saying that so much has shifted for them since that time that this was like a catalyst for something bigger and that word catalyst has come up for me a couple different times like this week even that my presence and it's hard to say this without feeling like I'm giving myself this weird credit because I don't feel like this. It's just what's coming and I see it and observing it is that when I connect with somebody in some capacity, I have been acting like a catalyst for a lot of different people. And so whether it's me just physically or like, you know, just talking, I don't know if I have to be in the physical presence, but I do believe that if that's what I bring on a physical level, then my art is also doing it and probably bigger, probably more Mm and in in ways that are still subtle that I can't fully see it or grasp it yet. But I do believe that I've got some things to share and I don't know what that totally means yet, but (laughs) my art is definitely bridging something at the moment. And I'm not, I am 100% surrendering to what that means. I have no quote unquote goals. I am fully along for this ride and I don't, I have no idea what that looks like for me in the future, but it does feel big and it feels very connected with um, the feminine horses, nature, coming back to our roots, tuning into a frequency that we believe is unattainable for the average person. I want more people to feel magic. I want more people to feel like (laughs) they are truly connected to everything. And because that's what wakes us up. That is what will wake us up to helping this planet to helping each other. Because when you feel like you're connected to things, you want to help them and not hurt them. And I really believe that that is my small part in this whole chaos that is humanity.
0: Mm-hmm. That's marvelous, yeah. And there too, there, I feel some synchronistic resonance in the sense that you know I don't draw, but I work with photography. And the question for me is always: if I am making an image with a, with a horse, um, it, instead of just a portrait, it, how to make that image in a way that the image becomes a vehicle for The magic of that horse to be able to enter the viewer's life. So when a person gets a portrait uh, from me that also comes with a meditation and the idea is if you sit with this horse every day and you recite this meditation or just read it that you are activating that archetypal potential that that this particular image represents. And people, of course, are choosing them based on, they're being drawn to, you know, out of a gallery of images, this is the one I'm drawn to. They don't know what the meditation is till they get it. And then often find that it's synchronistic. And sometimes I'll talk to the person if I know what's going on in their life. Similarly, I'll change the meditation a little bit so that they have a way to work. But it's a similar idea of how we can let this energy come through And uh, of course, it's more challenging with a photograph because I can't add the little, right? I mean, it just has to be off the feeling. The state that I'm in and the state of connection that I'm in with the horse at that moment, because that's also, there's, there's never, it's not the sort of luxury horse photography or even like the stuff that veers almost into horse porn, you know, where you're like, oh my God, and it's all highly polished. These are just like, every single one of these is close and the horse is looking at me. They're, they are, they're fully aware. They're connected with me. They know me. It's a friend and they're willing to, to share this in this moment. So that's really uh, wonderful that you're doing this. And it, in this, this this series on magic, one of the things that I, I quote Yeats, he has these three principles of magic. But one of the things he says about magic is he said, you know, I wish that I could just put the idea of magic out of my mind. But but I can't, you know, and, and because it's real, I, I've experienced it. But the problem is that once you know about it, it's kind of like Aldo Leopold. Aldo Leopold said to get an ecological education is to live in a world of wounds. So he was saying it's really, it's not easy. Once you really, you, you think, you know, oh, I'm just seeing the, the woods. And no, but when you learn, you realize that's a plantation. And, you know, or, the, or that is old growth, like for about six yards on either side of the highway. And then it's a plantation or then it's been clear cut. And you start to see, oh my gosh, there is a lot of suffering in the body of the earth, in the body of these sentient beings. And Yeats was putting it in magical terms. He said, you know, the problem is I look around and I see a world that's just degraded. It doesn't have magic in it. So many places are just barren and people are living these mundane lives in the midst of a sacred miracle and you're trying to bring that magic back and i really really uh, admire that you're doing that and love that you're doing it with horses in particular and with that spirit of interwovenness
1: thank you that i love all of that because it's so so relevant for what's happening in this world that we're getting more and more disconnected i don't i think that there might be an equal okay maybe not equal there's a lot of pull and push Like there's people that are getting pulled away and more disconnected. And I think there's a lot of people that are pushing in and getting more connected right now than ever. And I like, I'm more of an optimist than anything. So I like to think that more people are drawing those deeper connections now than ever. And maybe it's just because I am more aware of it that I see those people now. Um, But yeah, magic is very real and it looks different to everybody. I'm sure Um, but yes, it's definitely a big part of my work. And I think I want to also touch on the fact that again, I have no goals for this. I don't truly know what this mission is that I'm on yet, but it's really about the reconnection to ourselves. Like, I really do believe that the horses are here to help us step into, this next level of consciousness, like they have taken us, like we talked at the beginning, they have taken us on this ride throughout our history. That they have pulled wagons, they have led us into war, they have just been our transportation. They've they've done so many things for us at the physical level to help us evolve as uh, as a species, and now they're helping us do the next. L- level of evolution but it's not going to be physical anymore or you know in this in this plane it's going to be more in the in our minds in our consciousness as a collective and i think that that is so so apparent right now it just feels like they're like calling to people and i don't know if you've seen this or heard this as well but I really believe that the horses are calling to people that maybe had an affinity to them as children, or they haven't gotten back to horses in years. And all of a sudden there's this mass wave of people reconnecting with horses, or maybe people have never even thought about them and they're being drawn to them now. And it just seems like they're, they're starting to get louder and they're really pulling people in from all corners because they are a direct reflection of what we need to work on. Like they can help. They are those mirrors for us. They allow us to see the dark parts of us that maybe we weren't ready to see. And they're also the support for when we are. So they're not in a way that like some horse therapies and stuff. Like I do believe that there's pros and cons to that because not all horses are meant for that. Not all horses sign up for that, but At some level, horses definitely act as that better therapist, I would say.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and also in the sense that uh, therapy in the dominant culture is is a tricky business and not always um, oriented toward our our fullest potentials, which either aren't recognized or outright rejected. Or therapists themselves, there's no no requirement that they have Mm -hmm. achieved some particular level of wisdom or something like that so there are a lot of potential limitations
1: yes definitely and one of the limitations is words having to speak about your feelings the whole time i mean i think somatic therapies are interesting i don't i've never experienced it but i do believe that that's tapping into something a little bit more horse-like where we have to feel the emotions rather than talk about them because you don't have to talk about your feelings to a horse they just see directly into your soul and ask you to acknowledge that non-verbally. And it could just come out in tears or a smile or a relaxation of some way. But that acknowledgement without having to put words to it, I think is something so special and necessary right now because we try to overanalyze and talk about everything right In these days like words are actually our most limiting thing as humans because we're missing so much nuance that could be felt or expressed in some other ways and i think i mean that's what one of the big things that draws me to animals in general because they don't have that capacity and how do we interact with them when we don't get to just babble on and talk to them
0: (laughs) yeah yeah and a lot of people might not re- realize that level of sensitivity you were talking about with Merlin and he would just run when he saw you coming because of uh, people might not realize how much they're they're giving away in their um in in their just their demeanor in their presence in their comportment um composure because composure is how we carry ourselves, but also how we put a painting together. We say, oh, yeah, you have good composition, good composure. So there's an art uh, to living that we're missing or kind of doing in a clumsy way. And this experiencing. I, I, I always remind uh, people, listeners, you have heard it a million times, but again, that we if we don't train the heart and the mind, we don't know our capacity to turn toward difficult emotions, so we need to learn, for instance, the skill of compassion that gives a space for the seemingly threatening, difficult thing to arise and be in. And then we have to cultivate attention and train the mind. This is where words can be liberating, because if they are words of wisdom, then it's kind of like you know, um, I was talking to somebody recently about this, that when you're overwhelmed with all the mind spinning, if you have a liturgy to read, okay, well from whatever tradition, we sometimes associate that with the church, but that's just the public performance of, of, of a sacred uh, activity. And so if you, ha- if you if you go to read Rumi, uh, or you go to read Buddha, it gives you words that actually are good words to be saying. And that starts to calm down all the crazy, and you just are focused then on a couple of, it might be om manipadmiyam, and that's, of course, you know, partly sound, as you were saying, to, uh, saying too, but in English we don't always get that, so but we could find words. and we see that in our dominant culture philosophies like Marcus Aurelius. you know, he was writing these words to himself that were slogans of wisdom, crystallizations of wisdom that would then let him face the day. You know, oh uh, un- universe, whatever is one with you is one with me," you know, these sorts of things that he would say. So but I also like the uh, how this has to go together with the not knowing you're talking about because human beings are infinitely capable capable of rationalizing and we always have to t- we have to discern the difference between impulse and inspiration because the ego wants to call everything that it likes an inspiration and doesn't <laughs> want to admit something might be just an impulse that it projected into the situation. So then we have a lot of work that we have to do and we have to not to not have an agenda that not knowing is so challenging for us. And yet this is where, as the planet gets more and more critical and we all wish we knew what to do, it seems that we have to be willing to surrender to a. I don't know what to do. It's a planet. What are you going to do? Try to control it?
1: <laughs> that is such a good point. Wow. And,
0: and so you, um, how do you, how do you deal with that? Not knowing. You, have you just gotten comfortable with it? Maybe it's just now your friend. Do it still sometimes do? You, do you every once in a while go? Oh, I don't know.
1: <laughs> yes and no. I... Okay. <laughs> I have been very good. Well, I've, I've been setting myself up for the not knowing my whole life. Um, I love adventure and spontaneity. And, um, after I went to, after I left college, um, I went off to New Zealand for a year and then I just have continued traveling the past since then and people would always ask me my plans and i always say i don't know and they people would i know that people get frustrated with me that i don't know my plans and it's like well that's for me to not know (laughs) and i just love that freedom of just i mean nowadays i've actually i'm starting to like feeling a little bit more rooted But I'm so glad that my soul had that time to be so free and just not know. And every day waking up, picking a spot on the map, where are we going today? And going to different countries where we didn't know the language and navigating through different things like there, there's so much to be learned in living like that. And I think that has just allowed me to easily accept this not knowing journey and my art because I didn't start this business quote unquote business with a goal in mind. Um, It happened as a symptom of not having a job during COVID when that hit. And so it's really just been, I've I've just been flowing with it while I have it. And so the day it's not inspiring to me anymore. Well, Maybe I'll move on. Maybe I won't. I don't know. Um, but I'll talk about this summer when I really felt like, no, I can't do this. Um, there was, I would say maybe from about May until August, I was at a point of, I just truly don't know if I can do this as a job because it is so taxing to be creative on the spot like this and I was just basking in it as I had it because it was non-stop like I was it was pretty constant for over two years and that's crazy um, but there something just stopped me and I had to stop all my commissions because I wasn't able to draw that's what it felt like I it just I was able to finish up some projects. I was able to work on a few things to, you know, so I could pay my bills. But at the heart of it, I was just kind of getting sucked under. And I just was like daydreaming about cafe jobs. Like I was like, I just want to go to a boring job, please. Like I can't do this right now. And I don't have a sense of purpose. Like horses weren't in my life at the time. I was, I just really felt so, purposeless in a way like I physically couldn't do it and I had no inspiration so it felt so dense and I knew that this was like a it felt like a test like can you really let go like can you fully surrender to this and let all of this notion go that you have to do anything right now and that's terrifying when you're already on pennies as it is. And then you have to just say, okay, fine. I just won't do anything and just take walks on the beach and read your books and do nothing for weeks (laughs) until the inspiration might come back. Well, in hindsight now, it seems so obvious and clear. At the time it was emotional turmoil every day. Um, However, again, in hindsight, That is when I believe Merlin was in the works of what he needed to do on his end to come back. Because the second I found out that he was going to enter my life again, everything shifted. Everything came back for me immediately. Like, I didn't have physical time to draw because I was going, I had a crazy busy August but the inspiration started flowing and everything started coming back. And I could just tell that he was so interlinked with what was to come that I needed to totally drop and let myself not do for a while because I had a lot to do coming up. And I still don't know what that means, (laughs) but it's happening. (laughs) Um, But yes, there's, there's some potency with the, the not knowing but it's not for everybody.
0: Yeah, well, it's required. It's not just that there's some potency we We can't know yeah. uh, the world in the way that we habitually try to know things uh, the, you know that we can't know this we can't know ourselves. we're not an object, so there has to be something, some kind of shift, and it has to begin with letting go a little bit of what we think we know, and this not knowing, of course, is not two words. see, there's knowing something, there's knowing nothing, but then there's not knowing. Which we could hyphenate. It's sort of like the same way as Wu Wei. There's doing something. There's doing nothing, and then there's non-doing. So a kind of non-knowing or not knowing, which is not I'm walking around like an idiot, but you know I'm I'm there, but I don't fully. There was an anthropologist. He well, actually technically he was trained as a psychologist, and he went to Malaysia, and he. Uh, became very interested in the indigenous people, and this was back in the sixties, where there still were some people who, you know, were unlettered and had very little exposure to to uh, civilization. We would say, and he, it was very difficult to find the villages. They weren't like all mapped out. What you would have to do is he didn't even have a car, so he never knew when he was going to. Be able to go visit, try to visit one of these villages. He somebody would say, "Oh, I'm going to such and such place." He'd say, "Well, you know what? Can you give me a, a ride? I'll just take the afternoon off of work, and I'm going to go see if there's a village in that direction. I'm in that direction." And then he would go down the road. And once you left the city and you went far enough, you might find a little, road, you know, roadside bodega or something. You stop in there or at the gas station. You say, "Do you know of any villages, any indigenous villages, anywhere?" And somebody might say, "Oh, yeah, about you know, ten miles in in the jungle, there is one." So then he'd go. And so now he, he had no idea where he would be or what day. He starts walking to these villages, to a village one day, and he, uh, he's starting to, just at the moment where he's starting to think, man, I don't, I'm going to get lost in the jungle. It, he'd happen upon somebody who was just sitting on a log, and the person would look at him, smile, stand up, and start walking. And he would think, I guess I'm supposed to follow him. And so he'd he follow the guy. 20 minutes later, he's in the village. And he said, wait a second. You, how did you know I wanted to? Do, do, were you waiting for me? So he didn't understand. Then it happened again, and then it happened again. And this started to drive him crazy. And so he's, he asked, He would ask, and people would, they would just laugh. It took a while till he finally got an answer. And what, what somebody explained to him was, well, and this indigenous group, you know, the, one of the things that characterized their culture is every morning they would wake up and they would sit around and share the dreams that they had had. And people would say, you know, I dreamed of this and this, and somebody would say, well, you know, I think it must mean this, or, and somebody else would share, well, I also had this dream, and from that dialogue, their day would begin. In many cases, they would say, well, let's go, let's do that. That must mean we have to do such and such, and they would go do it. So this fellow, uh, f- uh, he finally explains to the to the psychologist. He said, well, okay, uh, I was just walking along in the jungle, and I had a feeling that I needed to stay here. And then, uh, not that long after, you showed up. And I realized that that's why. I didn't know why I was supposed to stay there. I just knew I was supposed to stay there. And he said, that that's how you live. Yes. You know, you do something, and you're not even sure what you're doing. You just feel, I have to go this direction. And you walk that direction. You realize, well, that's because there's a fruiting tree that we need. We, <laughs> so, it's just it's just like that. And it's this kind oh, of, God. Yeah. It's a wonderful mystical participation and it's part of how we hear the horse because if we have an agenda all the time and we're deciding, I know what to do, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, how can the voice of horse get through? It has to be sometimes that I don't know why and then Merlin says, well, I'm sorry, it took me a while because Merlin couldn't send you a soul telegram. It's just things have to happen. (laughs) And then, then you say, oh, now I get it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, I love that story. I think that. I, I mean, I'm sure so many people find resonance in that. Of like, I'm not really sure why I did this today, and then you find the validation later. Um, interesting. You brought up dreams, though. Um, I'm not sure with it what this fully means yet. But I woke last night when I was falling asleep, in that in between, not quite sleeping, not quite awake. Um, I had this jolt. It. It woke, it really woke me up when I, and my heart was something. And I was like, wow, that was intense. And what it was, was this black horse with this white diamond running through the clouds, like at me, but he was pulling a cart. And then he just stood there when he reached me. And, and at this point I'm awake and I'm, but I'm continuously seeing him in my mind's eye, like this very, very defined horse, like, I blinked even cuz I'm like how can I still see it this clearly? It was I've never had an experience like that before where I'm waking and I mean of course like I'm always drawing I always see stuff in my mind but this was this was different. It was like one of those trick things that you stare at for a while and then you look away and it's just like still lingering in your in your vision. That's what it felt like. And so I messaged a friend who actually is the one that has Merlin at her house, her farm. And I messaged her this morning with that dream. And she had the same exact black horse in her dream last night. And Mm. we don't know what that, we don't know what that means quite yet, but it was very, for both of us, it was such an intense experience of noting that that happened. And both of us telling each other our dreams that, yeah mm. it was just a very interesting. I've not had a horse come to me in my dreams like that before. so that mm. was interesting that happened today.
0: <laughs> so powerful. that's really wonderful. and this it goes to show too why the this this sort of phenomena why the spiritual traditions are are so adamant about grounding us in ethics and real mind training because they, rec- they have long recognized that people can, can have visions and prophecies and not necessarily have any spiritual development. So they can be spiritually immature, but then their ego thinks, I must be so great because I'm having all these experiences. So I, I love the way Kierkegaard and my uh, kinsman, Nikos Kazantzakis, that's another Nikos, but Nikos Kazantzakis was from the same village. I uh, always have to plug my village. Uh, near Heraklion in Creed, um, as as my father w- lived in. And he wrote Zorba the Greek. And Zorba the Greek is a good movie to watch. He wrote the screenplay, everybody, if you don't want to read the novel. And he did a good job on it. And one of the things that he's chosen there, Zorba is kind of like a Buddha figure. And he's not totally enlightened, but he is this like really wow you know he's kind of somewhere between crazy and, and enlightened and but one of the things that he does to to bring out the the problem of this that this presents is zorba tells the the narrator of the book he says uh, well you know i was working in this job uh working this job i think it was a mine and uh, you know uh, one day i just showed up for for work and and i i beat the hell out of the boss and the narrator says, what? He said, yeah, I, I just beat the hell out of him. Why'd you do that? I have no idea. I like the guy. He gave me cigarettes. And it's it's this thing that Zorba, like he doesn't know. <laughs> and so what what Kazantzakis is trying to say is that if we really, that we have to recognize that we have to be so sure about our virtue and our ethics and our awareness of our mind because sure, in a case like that, you might say, well, that seems like a like dangerous thing for me to say, well, I don't know why I did it. And he's saying, yeah, it really is. But Kierkegaard, of course, uh, his fear and trembling, he says, well, yes, but that's what the divine life is because of the story of Abraham and Isaac. Because God, the overlord of the universe, the ultimate voice to come through you, right, says you've got to kill your son. And that's, that's ridiculous, it's the first place in the Bible that the word love appears, though. There's something about this incredible, terrifying leap of faith that, I mean, it's, what I'm saying is this is so serious, isn't it? Because lots of people justify bad things because God told me to do it. Yes. And so then even if we're doing something innocent, we might think, well, the ethical bar for me isn't as high as one of these people. But I think what, what Kierkegaard understood is, no, living your everyday life you have to be that grounded because there isn't a way to live in harmony with your soul without touching this thing we're talking about and then even if you think you're doing something innocent like well i'm just uh, you know i'm just taking a vacation to such and such a place yeah but that's nothing's innocent everything's interwoven and if we kind of get lazy about our our spiritual cultivation there then we'll think we can do whatever we want cuz you know what i mean I'm just pointing out this, you know, kind of spiritual materialism that we have to face with with these mm. powerful energies. That's
1: uh, really good to note. I'm not yeah. to like said it like that.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, let me ask you. Uh, maybe we can come to a close with anything you would like to, anything final you'd like to touch on. We can go back to something small. You can. It doesn't have to be a big grand summation. <laughs> and you just take a breath and see what you what you might like to say.
1: I, I really appreciate these conversations. And I think there are a lot of people now that are able to have the capacity to feel these kind of conversations now, which is really amazing. And I just want to say, too, that I really think that we are at a very pivotal time in the world for making some big changes And I don't, we don't know what that means yet. And we can't know. And something that I did get from Merlin was that we are meant to let them guide us right now because we've been the ones telling for so long. We've been the ones leading the steps and now it's time to let them lead without us fully knowing where we're going so that kind of wraps up where we're at
0: (laughs) yeah and that's really a powerful lesson to think about to try to have that humility Mm -hmm. that that homo sapiens that homo is humus and it's the same root homo humus humility Uh, how can we have that appropriate humility because many indigenous cultures see these beings as our elders that we're the little we're the younger one and they they taught us how to be what we are and we owe them something for that and we've forgotten the things that they taught us about how to be what we are and uh, yeah it's also so beautiful to remember That's why these small things that I was talking about, really looking at our our ethics, our livelihood, really looking at our capacity to work with mind and emotion and body and world in synchronicity and synchronization. But it's because a little thing can create a large change because the world is is a nonlinear system and because of phase shifts you know that at at 33 degrees fahrenheit water's flowing still okay but you wouldn't have known that at 32 you think hey everything's stuck and you know a little bit of hot breath you know a little everyone breathing and praying over that water would be enough and you would think whoa everyone just breathed and prayed and now it's flowing <laughs> how is that and because we'd be surprised what a little thing can do mm-hmm. when we do it consistently so thank you for your deep practice nika and for your your joyful perseverance on this path of mystery
1: thank you thank you for letting me speak on it
0: yeah and as i said i will put in the show notes links that you can uh, remind you of her instagram handle and website and then if you haven't looked at youtube i will uh, put up some the same dialogue but with images from nika's work her portfolio so thanks to all of you for joining us. If you have questions, reflections, stories to share about the magic of horses, the magic of art, the mystery that we're all unfolding together, send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. You might be able to bring in some of them in a future contemplation or dialogue. In the meantime, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.